Alright, good morning. Jeez. Man, guys, stop it. Just please, just stop. And now, I mean, the beginning's already ruined because I was going to introduce myself, but I guess you already know my name. I don't even know where I'd go from here. Uh, just kidding. Let's bring this up. Good morning, everybody. Man, it's great to see you. I am so glad you could join us today. And I'm really thankful uh, for anyone who may be new today. Uh, we have connect cards over here at this table. And so if you are new today, or maybe you just have some questions about anything at all, please fill out a connect card, uh, drop it in the big old box right there for offering, and we would love to connect with you um, and get to know you better. But I am so grateful to be here this morning um, and continue the sermon series, Liturgy. This sermon series, uh, what we're talking about is experiencing spiritual formation through the church, specifically the Sunday morning gathering like this morning, as well as other avenues of community. And the church is necessary. It, it's very necessary because we exist in a kingdom, right? It, it's not like we're uh, individuals sitting on some island where it's just us and God just doing our thing. Rather, God intentionally puts us together as a family, as a community. And we're all living toward a singular goal, but not individually. Christianity is not an individual pursuit, rather is a corporate calling to worship the one true God. And so church is important, the Sunday gathering is important. I was actually talking with a friend of mine, he's a senior pastor up north uh, in the Midwest, and I was talking to him earlier this week and he was expressing just how much he loved the church and all the ways that it has benefited him and uh, over the course of his whole ministry. And he described it uh, using terms that I, I thought it was super good and, and it really helped me to kind of look at it and say, hey, that, that does make sense. And so I'm gonna steal it and I'm gonna share it with you because uh, it was super encouraging for me and I hope it will help you to be able to take uh, the idea of the church as a whole and put it in terms that uh, would be encouraging and also something that you can kind of grasp really easily. And so he talked about how the church for him was kind of like a trellis. And so if anyone's ever farmed or, or done any agriculture, you may know what a trellis is. Uh, and if not, that's okay, we do live in a city. Um, but a trellis is, you can think of a vineyard, okay? And uh, grapes grow on vines, right? The trellis is that like T structure or like a lattice work that's all down the rows that the vines actually grow up on, right? So that's what a trellis is. And the trellis exists in a vineyard because it supports the weight of the vine so that it can uh, be protected from disease. Otherwise it's on the ground and in this clump. And so disease will form on the leaves and on the vine because it's not able to spread out. And so there's diseases that form as well as uh, predators can get to the fruit easier. And it also trains the vine to grow up properly and to spread out to be able to, you know, have their leaves exposed to sunlight in the best way possible and to be able to get all the nutrients that they need. And it encourages growth. More fruit is produced on a vine if it is on the trellis. And the danger of not having a trellis, if you just had a bunch of uh, grapevines without a trellis laying on the ground, you have danger of disease and predators it will wither from a lack of resources because it's not able to you know, spread out the way it's supposed to. And it will just have a lack of fruit. In the same way, the church is like a trellis for our faith. It is something that supports the burdens of all of us. It supports the weight, the stuff that we go through. The church supports us in that. It protects us 
from false teaching and protects us from discouragement. And it trains us to grow properly through discipleship and the preached word on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. And it trains us so that we may grow and produce fruit. And so the church is important. If we want to be fruitful, if we want to grow, if we want to be able to honor God to the best of our ability, we need to take church seriously. The Sunday gathering and other forms of community are integral to the church. And if we take that away, then it's all just going to crumble and fall apart and we will wither due to lack of resources. And so today we're talking specifically about confession of sin. And confession of sin is super important for the church as well because it's gonna keep the community healthy and tightly knit. And I I recognize that confession is not an easy thing to talk about. I'm I'm pretty sure as soon as I said, hey, we're talking about confession, a few people were like, oh, okay, let's do this. Like, let's let's dive in. I know for me, when uh, Pastor Marco asked me to preach this Sunday, I was like, oh, confession of sin, awesome. I love that. But confession is super important, but it is very difficult. Even in my marriage with my wife, we've been married for more than seven and a half years, and she is my best friend. Yeah, it's awesome. (laughs) And she's my best friend. Uh, Like, I share everything with her. Um, I'm not more comfortable with anyone else, right? And yet, to be able to go to her and confess when I've sinned against her is still one of the hardest things in my life, but it's necessary. If if I want to have our relationship grow and not be hindered and not allow things to fester, I have to be able to confess sin to my wife. And let's be honest, we all have things in our life. I mean, we got stresses, we've we've got uh, work. I mean, I got kids at home that make me just wanna pull my hair out sometimes, and I end up taking it out on her. And so I do sin against my wife. And it is unfortunately more common than I would like it to be, but it has to have repentance and confession of that sin. Otherwise, we're just ignoring it. And so yes, it's difficult to do. And it's difficult when I have to confess to my wife. But when I do confess the sin that I've committed toward my wife, she is able to forgive me And that affirms the love that she has for me and the relationship that we have built upon a covenant that we made together in marriage. In the same way, when we confess our sins to God and to each other as a church, as a corporate body, we are allowing the opportunity for one, for God to be able to affirm the forgiveness of our sins, but we're allowing the church to affirm the love and the forgiveness from God. And so we are able to move forward in confidence, move forward in peace, and and be able to know that we are forgiven, to know that uh, what God is doing in our lives is a real thing. And so confession is important. We have to have confession. And ultimately what it does is it testifies to the fact that you are a new creation, transformed by the grace of God. And so that's the main idea. As we move through today, I want you to remember this, that confession of sin is an affirmation of God's transformative grace within your life. And we can hold on to that. So today we're going to be in Psalm 32. And we're going to dive into what confession is, 
put a baseline down of what it is, and we're going to talk about what's the result of confession, both in the individual, in you, what's the result when you confess, and what's the result in the church as a whole. And so open your Bibles or load them on your phone to Psalm 32, starting in verse 1. We're going to do 1 through 4. And it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you so much for the opportunity to be together as a church body, to be able to worship together. Thank you so much for the worship team this morning and just the grace that they brought us through your Holy Spirit. God, we had such a great time of worship and I ask that you help us to continue that time of worship through the preached word and through the rest of today. Lord, I I submit myself to you so that your message will come through, that I will be put aside and Holy Spirit, that you will do a work in all of our hearts this morning. I thank you for all things. Amen. All right, guys, so confession. When we're talking about confession, I want to first put it out there that what I'm going to talk about today is not just confession between you and God. I'm also talking about confession between you and brothers and sisters within the church. Okay? So everything that we're going to talk about is, yes, confession of sin to God, but also keep in mind this also applies to confessing to somebody else, actually vocalizing it, saying it, telling someone your sin. Not something we like to do. But I hope by the end of this morning, you'll be encouraged in what actually happens when you do confess your sin, because it is encouraging. And so what is confession? Confession is the outward expression of one, our grief towards sin, and two, repentance. In 2 Corinthians 7, 9, 10, it says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We wanna have this godly grief that is going to lead us to a place where we repent, and this godly grief is actually having sorrow that we have damaged relationship with God. It's actually seeing what, that, the, what our sin is doing to relationship. Because when we sin against God, it's, it's rejecting who he is, and it's rejecting what he has done within us. And so that should lead us to grief, a godly sorrow where our sin leads us to a place where we don't want anything to do with it anymore because we recognize the damage that has been done which ultimately will lead us to repentance. You have to have both parts or confession is not sincere. There must be grief, godly sorrow and grief toward your sin and repentance. Both of those things must exist to have true confession. And I see two things in uh, Psalm 32 in verses three and four, two unhealthy ways that we do respond instead of confession. So two unhealthy alternatives to the confession that 
I know I've seen in my own life, and I'm sure you're going to be able to recognize in your own. So verses three and four says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. So it's two unhealthy alternatives to confession. Instead of having godly sorrow toward our sin and then repenting, we instead will do, and number one, we will have guilt over the consequences of our sin, but not actually grief over the sin. It's not that we grieve what has actually happened in sin and how that damages relationship with God. We're actually just bummed we got caught. And it doesn't even necessarily take you actually getting caught by somebody. I think more often what this kind of expresses itself in our life is that we feel guilty about a secret sin that we have. Nobody may know about it but we feel guilty only because we know that if we do get caught, there will be consequences and we're afraid of those consequences. But there's no heart change. You're really not grieving the sin. You're grieving the consequences or the possibility of those consequences. I remember the first time for me that it changed from this unhealthy way of, uh, of just being guilty about consequences to actually grieving my sin for the first time. And so I became a Christian when I was in university and before I was a Christian, I was addicted to pornography and it carried into the first few years of uh, my Christian walk. And up to that point, this never made sense to me, having a godly grief, a, a sorrow over your sin. Cause I mean, honestly, I didn't really care you know, about any of my sins, really. And what I started feeling was just guilty about the consequences, the potential consequences of what my sin was, whether it's, you know, with pornography specifically, it was maybe my parents finding out at the time, they would, you know, be really disappointed in me. They were, they are godly uh, people and they're wonderful. And I knew that it would let them down or maybe just the way people would react if they found out uh, in my social circle. Or uh, at the time I was actually going to a Christian university and so there were real consequences for something like this uh, academically if I was found out. And so I felt guilty about all these things, but if I was honest, I didn't want to stop what I was doing because I didn't care. I didn't think it was really that bad, you know? But I did feel guilty, but just about the consequences. And I remember I had this, uh, this group of guys on my floor, and uh, over the course of the year, we had many conversations because we were all fairly new Christians, actually, and so we were talking about these things, uh, and pornography came up. And I remember one lunch specifically, I met with this guy, and we were talking and kind of sharing some stuff that God uh, was revealing in our time of, you know, scripture and all this stuff, and, and just kind of just figuring out, you know, what this all looks like. And he said that he had been reading a lot of the Old Testament lately, and one thing that really stood out to him was that 
God would talk about Israel when they sinned against uh, God and they would leave him to pursue other idols and other gods. He would use terms uh, like adultery and prostitution. Like you are, you are committing adultery against me. You are going toward these other idols. And that really stuck with me. And I continued to kind of process it and work through it. Um, and my parents always instilled a very strong belief in the vows taken in marriage and the covenant that happens there, which I am so grateful for. Um, but that was a part of the way I thought, you know, when you get married, man, you're married. There's no possibility except for a few biblical reasons for divorce or anything else. And so that was strong in the way I thought. And so as I started thinking about this, I was like, man, like when I sin against God, it's almost like committing adultery against him. And all the emotions that kind of go with that, you know, at the time I wasn't even married, so I couldn't exactly, you know, completely imagine, but it sucks. It sucks. And I knew that, and I could only even glimpse an idea of what that would feel like. And then recognizing that when I sinned against God, I was putting that pain on him and his heart because he loved me and had entered into covenant with me as a believer, and yet I continuously broke it willingly and not even caring. That image changed everything for me. And for the first time in my walk with Christ, I actually grieved over my sin. And for the first time in my walk with Christ, I was able to then get to the point of repentance where I was able to turn away from it and not go back. But it has to start with a godly sorrow over our sin. None of these other ways that we may go about sin, other ways of addressing it or justifying it in our mind, none of those other ways will lead you to repentance. And so, first unhealthy alternative is a guilt over our consequence. The second one is that we poison ourselves with shame. And this is not healthy. It says in verse four that his strength was dried up like a land in summer. When you allow shame to overcome you and to be the driving force in your life, you will dry up and you'll have nothing to give. I mean, this can be a godly person who truly loves the Lord and has sorrow over their sin, but then they don't repent. Rather, they hold on to it. And that godly sorrow will turn into ungodly sorrow, secular sorrow that has nothing to do with repentance and wanting to redeem relationship. Rather, it's going to turn into just shame that is going to just swell up within them and stifle any growth, any faith, any ability to move forward. I see this so often in believers where they allow shame over their sin to overcome them. And then they can't even go to God. Their prayer life is all of a sudden in shambles because every time they think of praying, they're like, I don't want to talk to him. I've let him down. I've failed God. I, I can't pray. I can't read scripture because it convicts me of my sin. And they just feel more and more terrible about themselves. Instead of confessing 
our sin. Confessing to God, yes, but also confessing to a brother or sister in Christ and allowing God's grace to be poured into them from a fellow believer. There is power and strength in that. We are in community for a reason. Be encouraged by the forgiveness that can, that can be given to you by a brother and sister in Christ. And so I'm sure that, you know, these two things you may see in certain areas of your life or maybe in your past. And so my prayer is that today you can repent of that and move forward with a healthy idea of what confession is, that it is a godly sorrow over your sin that leads to repentance with both things active in your life. And when we do see that, what we're gonna see is some amazing results through the Holy Spirit. And so what we're gonna talk about for the rest of our time is what does confession actually do? We're gonna talk about what it does in the individual and in the church. And so what does confession do in you? When you confess, what does it do? Number one, it testifies to a new heart. See, sin is a corrupting force within you and it disrupts relationship. And when we believe and confess we are redeemed by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, our relationship with God the Father is renewed and the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. And when that happens, a transformation occurs. Our dead, hardened heart towards sin is made soft and it is renewed. We are given a new life. We become a new creation. It says in verses one and two of Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there's no deceit. We are blessed and that blessed means that we have a grace poured upon us of transformation. We are not the same sinner we were before. We are a new creature with a new heart. And this is not natural This is not a natural occurrence that can come about on its own. This is something supernatural. I'm reminded of my youngest son, Joe. And Joe is awesome. Uh, He also wants to be potty trained because he sees his older siblings uh, using the toilet. So he wants to also be able to use the toilet. The problem is that Joe is not quite there yet. So uh, we have lots of accidents. But there is one really good thing that Joe has really mastered. Like, he's awesome at it. He can hold his pee now. And if you've potty trained, you know this is awesome, right? This is a big deal. He can hold until he goes to the bathroom. The problem is that he, uh, he doesn't hold till he goes to the bathroom. He just holds until he bursts, and then it all comes out in a torrent. And if you're familiar with diapers, they only hold a certain amount of liquid and other things. So Joe will be, you know, totally clean, no, no, uh, nothing in the diaper. And then within a minute, he's like overflowing and he's drenched and the floor is going to be all wet and it is a mess. And this has come out throughout the day. It's come out at night. It's so his whole bed is drenched. Uh, I've cleaned the floor. I don't know how many times. But Joe is uh, dirty a lot with his own filth. 
And so what do you do? As a father, I take him and I clean him, you know, wipe him down, get new clothes, new diaper, and clean him completely up. No pee, no poop, nothing. Set him down on the floor, and he runs off giggling because he's super happy and he doesn't know what I just had to do. But the point is that he's clean. I don't put a bag over him, maybe spray some Febreze and be like, yeah, you look fine. No, I clean my son because I love him and I want him to be clean. When God transforms us and puts a new heart within us, he is not covering up your sin. He is not covering you up and saying, you're still disgusting underneath, but at least you look righteous now. God is saying, I am making you clean. You are righteous and holy. You are my son, you are my daughter, and you are clean now and forever. That's what God does when he gives us a new heart. Praise God that what was dead is made alive and that what is stained by sin is made pure. Which leads us to the second thing that happens as a result of confession and that it fosters holiness. It fosters holiness within our lives. We are made righteous when we are given a new heart. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are truly made righteous. See, confession is not an expression of failure and shame, but a celebration of God's grace in our life. Holiness is not a distant aspect of God's character that is unobtainable for the believer. It is not something that you just see in the pages of scripture and think, oh man, that's a great thing. I'm so glad God is righteous. It is active. It is an active grace within us that transforms and renews. In that moment that we become a new creature, we are given righteousness. And then for the rest of our life, we have this process called sanctification where the Holy Spirit continuously makes us transformed and renews us and gives us more righteousness so that we are able to say no to sin and put it to death and repent from it so that we do not go back to it again. Yes, the presence of sin still exists and temptation will be there and we will sin, but we don't have to. We are free from the bondage of sin and so we are called to sanctification, to holiness, to growth in Jesus Christ and through the power of his Holy Spirit. And honestly, too often, and I know in my own mind and in minds of many people that I've talked to, the thought will come in that, oh, God will forgive me anyway. It's not too big of a deal. God will take that sin and he will forgive me, so I'll just ask for forgiveness later. Or maybe even in the process, you're not even thinking of that, and then after you sin, you're like, oh man, at least God will forgive me you don't actually grieve it. You don't actually address the sin and then there's no repentance. Paul sees this 
in even the early church and says in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we continue with this attitude that God will forgive me so it's okay if I keep sinning because at least then we can see his transforming love? Is that what we should do? By no means, Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who are a new creation with a new heart that is transformed to be able to pursue God, how can we with that new heart choose to stain it with sin? By no means do not live in sin because you are righteous by the transforming grace of God. Says in Psalm 32, that blessed is the one who's forgiven and whose spirit there is no deceit. The phrase is super important because what he's addressing, and other translation says with no guile, it means that when you come and you repent of your sin and you confess it, that your heart is sincere, that you truly are repenting of this sin so that you will never go back to it. Too often we have these sins in our life that we keep going back to and keep doing over and over and over and over again. And the truth is that we've never actually repented of them. We've just asked for forgiveness. But our heart is not sincere. It is full of deceit, even if you're deceiving yourself, because you know for a fact that you're gonna go right back to it. But it's okay, because God forgives. That's not what scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches us that we live in holiness because of the transformation of God in our hearts. Now we're gonna transition into what happens in the church. We've got this idea now of what confession does, confession of our sin to God and confession between each other because it is through that confession that it is reinforced and encouraged and we actually know that it's true. So what happens in the church as a body for all of us together? And this is the Sunday gathering, confession during a Sunday morning, confession during missional communities, small groups, discipleship groups, and other avenues of community. Confession must be a part of all these things to properly fulfill its purpose. So what does confession do to the church? Number one, it protects us from self-righteousness. The truth is that we have all sinned. Romans 3, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and we all need Jesus. This is a fact. Luke 11, Jesus is teaching us how to pray. And in that short prayer, he says, forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We forgive others because we recognize that we have to be forgiven ourselves. It means that we're all in the same boat. We're all on the same level. Nobody is better than anybody else because we've all sinned. That applies within the church and it applies without the church too. Outside the church. We are no better I'm reminded of when Jesus 
stepped between a group of supposedly religious people and a woman who was an adulteress. Jesus stepped in between them and this group was berating her, condemning her. Their self-righteous judgment was going to kill her because she had sinned. And they were professing religious elite, saying we follow God's own heart. And this is how they responded. Jesus steps into this situation and who does he push back against? He pushes back against these professive religious people saying that you know, they are the ones who know who God is. He pushed back against them and said that the first one without sin cast the first stone and none of them did because they all have sin. Yes, this woman was an adulteress, which was sin. And yes, it seems from the story that she is unrepentant. And even afterward, Jesus says, everyone left, and Jesus looks at her and says, go home and sin no more. But we don't know if she repented. Matter of fact, it seems likely with just how we know people that she didn't, but we don't know. But we see that Jesus interjected and protected the sinner from the supposed righteous because their sin was great. And he called for repentance, said, go home and sin no more. But he interjected on her behalf even while she was still a sinner. Too often we see that the church especially the American church, is filled with self-righteous Christians who condemn and judge all manner of people living in lifestyles that are not conducive to the word of God. But all we see from them is just a mob of self-righteous people who are showing hatred, not love, toward people. And Jesus very clearly came in and said, that's not how I do things. I call for repentance and a change of heart. I do not call for self-righteousness and judgment. Confession within the church is going to protect us from this kind of attitude. Because confession is going to remind us that we are no better than each other and we are no better than anyone who doesn't know Christ. The only thing that separates us from the non-believer is the transformative grace of God. It is not you. It is Jesus. And so self-righteousness holds no place within the church. Jesus tells us that we are to love God and love one another love our neighbor, love those who are even not in the church so that they can come to know him. Not so that you can berate them and belittle them and express just how right you are over them. And so we are protected from self-righteous behavior because of confession. And it also affirms God's forgiveness for us, number two. And we've kind of touched on this up to this point there is the temptation for us to confess uh, privately, 
just confess to God. And the truth is that he does forgive, right? We can go straight to God. There's no, necess- like, there's no need for a mediator. Jesus Christ is our mediator. And so we can go straight to God for forgiveness. The temptation, though, is that we do this, and we're not actually repenting, though. Rather, what we're doing is that we are going to acknowledge our sin, but not actually repent of it. It's too easy in our own minds to be like, oh man, I messed up, God, please forgive me, and then we just move on and think, oh, I've done my part. I've acknowledged the sin that I've committed, but we're actually leaving God out of it, and we're just justifying our behavior to ourselves, saying we've done our religious duty now that we have asked for forgiveness. Confession to each other, though, is going to bring everything to the surface. It's going to lay it all on the table, and you are now going to have people who love you and love God in your life who are in the midst of it. And so confession to each other becomes this awesome, necessary step so that we can then be led to a place of repentance. And it provides the opportunity for brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to forgive us of our sin, like they will forgive us. I know that when I ask ask my wife for forgiveness for the sins I've committed against her, I'm confessing and I am asking her to forgive me. When she forgives me, it's an affirmation of her love, yes, but it's also an affirmation of the forgiveness that God is giving me too. Because I know that she is a woman after his own heart and that she lives in his grace as a transformed new creature every day. And so when she forgives me, it gives me great confidence and peace of mind that I am also forgiven by God. That is what the church does for each other. We need people in our lives who are able to speak into them and say you are forgiven. Do not hold on to shame. Don't regret. Glorify and worship the Father for the forgiveness that you are experiencing right now. James 5.16 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The Holy Spirit moves in a miraculous, supernatural way when we confess our sins to each other. We have assured freedom from sin in this. And it's gonna result in peace of mind, it's gonna result in joy, thanksgiving, thankfulness, and worship. I said earlier that that confession of sin is not an expression of guilt and failure and shame. This is when we can celebrate God's grace in our life. And ultimately, it's going to lead to our last point, number three, that when we confess our sin, it's going to lead to the profession of the gospel. Our testimony 
is the story of what God has done in our life in this transformation that we've been talking about. That testimony is not possible without confession. You cannot share what God has done in your life without acknowledging and confessing the sin in your life. The active transformation of God's people and the renewal of our hearts is the testimony of the gospel's truth and power within the individual. And it's gonna require a few things. It's gonna require that you have an identity rooted in Jesus Christ. It's gonna require that you're sincere, that your heart is truly pursuing him and wanting to put aside sin. And it's going to require a commitment to regular confession of sin to God and to the church. We're all looking toward each other for encouragement, for edification. We need each other because, I mean, sometimes life is just beating you down. God put the church here so that we may encourage one another. And a watching world is looking to the church. What gospel are we professing? One of self-righteous judgment and hatred? Or are we professing transforming grace? Unfortunately, recently, especially, Christianity has a reputation for the former. And it's because the message that's being professed is not born from regular confession of sin. It's a message born from pride and arrogance and self-righteousness within the church. Christians should be the first to admit our shortcomings. Christian, you should be the first to admit when you mess up. You should be the first to admit your struggles. We should be the first to admit our failures. And Christian, you should be the first to loudly profess the transformative grace of Jesus Christ. Let us be a people that confess our sins to one another. Let us cast aside self-righteousness and affirm God's love and forgiveness in each other and point people ultimately toward Jesus and that grace that is available for them and for us. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for everything that you do. God, you are, you are so amazing. In every way the word can be comprehended. God, I am so grateful that you have chosen to forgive me and redeem me. I am grateful for my brothers and sisters in this place where, where your transforming grace has made them new. God, we were dead and you made us alive and you have given us hope. You have given us the ability to worship and have a relationship with the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who is the only way. Oh, Father, I thank you so much for that. I thank you for the part you allow us to play in the transformation of each other. 
Lord, I ask that you give us courage to be able to confess. Allow us to be able to come to one another and lay everything on the table. Don't allow our shame to wither us away. Let confession be the new norm. Let us come to one another so that we can experience your forgiveness and your grace again and again and have the affirmation of brothers and sisters who love us. Holy Spirit, your work is wonderful and we ask for it today, right now, in this place. We praise your name and we always lift you up and glorify you and worship you because of this that you have done for us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.